Today's readings are Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. They can be found on pages 1005 and 1007 of the Bible's next year seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, and they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in in them all that there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, as we come into this space on this rainy day, it's a little darker than normal, the sun's not piercing through those back windows And for some of us, that brings up emotions. It puts us in a different kind of space. Maybe things are more raw this morning or real. Maybe we're more in touch with a sort of darkness in our hearts. Or maybe some of us are more in touch with your providence, your, the way you provide, and your faithfulness in our lives, the way you're providing water for the land. We come from all different places. We're, we're a mixed bag this morning. We don't assume that we're all sitting here excitedly embracing all the words that are up on the screen. Um, we might come with doubt, questions, a lot of resistance to what this whole thing means, this story of God, this Christian faith, this Jesus, this Holy Spirit. And others of us may just come troubled and really seeking your, your comfort today. Some of us might come alone looking for community. We might come um, desperate for a, a door to open in our lives. Wherever we come from, may we all um, meet you this morning because we need your grace, all of us, because we're more of a mess than we care to admit, more broken than we want to tell people, all of us. And yet you turn towards all of us And you meet us with your grace so that we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. Anytime we open up our hearts to hear what you have done for us through Jesus. Will you open us up today? Would you speak to us exactly where we need it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The question of the week that we had last week. Um, we got a bunch of answers for it. And the question was, is it easier to share your stuff when you're a grown-up? I have, I have little kids, and so I see this, this, you know, you're always teaching about sharing, right? You're always kind of trying to hardwire these rules into place, but it's just developmentally, you know, you're just kind of going, they, they can't yet. They don't really, 
It just comes from within, the possessiveness. So is it easier when you grow up? Here's some answers. Uh, Yes, I am truly not that attached to my things, someone said. Um, And all of you just resonate. You're like, yes, that's me. No, there's all these different answers. Someone said, no, it's worse because there's no parent forcing you to share. Um, Someone else said, as a middle child, I have a severe case of middle child syndrome, and I feel threatened whenever someone wants my stuff. Um, someone else says, uh, my stuff, no problem. Have at it. My time, okay, now, now you're going to have to negotiate. I like that. Um, my wife, Lisa, and I, we watched this, uh, this program that some of you have watched, Breaking Bad, and there's this wonderful scene um, as this high school chemistry teacher who turns to cooking crystal meth because he has to pay for cancer treatments. And he's really good at it. And so at various points in the show of various seasons, he's, he's making a lot of money within given periods of time. And you get to season five where his, his wife, who at this point now is kind of in on it and helping him launder the money because her thing is accounting, and she brings him out to a storage facility. And they step in, and maybe you can't see it that well because of the lighting in here. But she brings them into the storage facility, and they're standing in front of this giant pile of cash. And the dialogue basically goes something like this. She says, it started coming in too fast. I couldn't launder it all, so I finally just bought this space and started stacking it up. I didn't know what to do with it. And as they sit there over this huge pile of money, she turns to him and she says, this quote that's also in your worship guide, she says, um, how much is enough? How big does this pile have to be? I mean, she wants him out of this, this drug-selling mess, and so she's saying, when are you going to be satisfied? How big does the pile have to be? And I, I actually love that question. I feel like that's a question that so much of us, so much of the time, could be asked We could picture ourselves metaphorically as standing before enough, enough stuff, enough wealth, and having to ask ourselves that. We would be helped greatly to ask that question a lot. And yet, some of you know, some of you have those reflective moments. Maybe all of you have those reflective moments where you do kind of, you do say, you know, I think I I have enough. But it's different to just ask that question than to actually kind of, pass on through that question and begin to live it out and begin to act like you have enough. Begin to live like you have enough. Maybe you have enough to start to, to give some of the pile away. Maybe, um, maybe you have enough even... Uh, maybe you feel like you have too much if, if you start to really see things clearly. It'd be, it's better for me to release. And yet, we don't find that very easy to do. Um, and in this passage of Scripture... It's so intriguing, right? Because here's this community of people that it seems like they have discovered how to do this. It's almost as if they've caught a virus or something. Did you notice these, these are two different descriptions of the same early period of the church after Jesus has died and risen and then ascended and now the church is becoming what Jesus intended they would become and they're, they're just... They're giving the pile away. They're people who are acting different than we're able to find ourselves on our own strength to be able to act. 
They're seeing that they have enough. They're seeing that they have too much, and they're going out and they're giving away. In fact, there's people in this group that are mentioned who are, are like the super wealthy. You know, they're the 1%. And they're in community with people who are, uh, who are absolutely impoverished. This is the, another side note of the Christian faith, is that it, it, it does this sort of automatically. It brings people from all different walks of life. Into, and so the ones who are the super wealthy are saying, oh, suddenly now, because of this new Jesus thing, I see that I have way too much and I don't need it. And so they're, they're just giving and saying, well, that person over there needs some. And so I sell this piece of land and I come in and I just give it. I, it's nothing to me now. I have too much. What's going on? You know, I've always puzzled over these passages of Scripture ever since I was in college and I discovered them and I, it just blew my mind. I was attracted to the picture of community and the closeness. I was also attracted to the radical nature of giving away and how would you do that? And I, you, I noticed these, pass, these things. I've never been able to put them quite together until this week where on the one hand in chapter 2 it says in 40, verse 47, they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They were enjoying the favor of all the people, and new people were becoming believers. Then, in chapter 5, we didn't read this part, chapter 5, verse 13, is another few sentences of description of the community, and in that, in that place it says, um, uh, no one, where is it, chapter 5, verse 13, it says, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. I've never been able to put that together. There were more people being added to their number. They were enjoying the favor of all the people, but no one dared join them. And I wonder if, I've discovered it this week when I realized, they didn't want to catch the virus. They're looking at it, oh, that's really intriguing that you all are giving your possessions away. But I'm going to stand over here and just watch, intrigued. I don't want to join. Maybe, maybe I'll catch that virus too, in a sense. I, I kind of humorously thought, like, yeah, because the gospel is something that you sort of catch. And then... Your release, your stuff. It's, the gospel is, uh, if you're a fisherman, the gospel is the, the real catch and release program. You know, when you're fishing, you're supposed to catch and release in certain places. You catch the gospel, and then it automatically begins to affect you that you release things. That seems to be what's happening. People in this passage seem to be breaking free from the worry and the burden of getting more stuff and having enough and having a stable future financially. How are they doing it? It's a huge mystery. Let's try to peel back some of the layers. I want to do so. Um, I got a, like a little bit of an outline today. So um, a grace-centered life. They do it with a grace-centered life. And let's first look at how the grace-centered life is totally, radically different in its handling of money and stuff. People today might look at this passage and say, well, it says that they were bringing the proceeds of various sales of liquidating their stuff and they were setting them at the feet of the apostles. People today might look at that and say, I can, I can totally see someone saying this. Well, that was really dumb. Why are they bringing their money to religious people? <laughs> right? What, we've seen those religious people on TV. We've read the newspaper articles that come out when they, and some of them are now in jail, at least some of the ones that I saw on TV when I was a, a kid. You know, why, why mix money and faith and religion like that? Just give it straight to the poor people. Isn't that what people say? It's interesting to see the kind of logic underneath things. Because I can hear someone saying that and, and, and following it up by saying, you know, what really just matters is that you do some good, that you're, you have a compassionate side, that you give some away, that you help in some way. 
that's what really matters is that you give some stuff away to those who need it the most. A grace-centered life functions totally different, has a different logic. Even as good as what I just said, as good as that sounds, the gospel comes in a little different. Because the gospel says it's not what you do that's at the center. It's something that's been done for you. The gospel is not, well, you better create some good news in your life. You better create some good doing in your life. It's, I've discovered the doing of one on my behalf. In, uh, there's this, this great hymn um, that has this, this wonderful line that explains it perfectly. The gospel is the only viewpoint that, that really says this. The Christian gospel says in this hymn, it says, Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. The gospel basically says, in order to understand how things really work in God's eyes, you need to come to the end of your rope. You need to see the limit of your doing in order to see the doing of Christ on your behalf. How wonderfully he meets you, and you can stand in that alone. Our culture would tell you, very differently, our culture would tell you, you've done well for yourself. You deserve to enjoy it. But just, hey, just make sure you're not being cold-hearted about it. Make sure you're looking around. And this morning there was an, a, a really good piece in the Sacramento Bee. It's worth picking up the paper if you don't subscribe on the faces of homelessness in Sacramento because there's 2,500 um, men, women, and children who are homeless in Sacramento. And, it, and, and our culture would say, hey, you've earned it. You've done well for yourself. In a sense, you've, you've saved yourself You've gotten yourself kind of lined up, your future lined up. Just don't be cold-hearted about it. Give a little. Help balance the scales. From the gospel, you look at that and you, and you say, well, let's, pick, let's, let's see what, that, what that's really saying. What, what that's really saying is that, oh, you've been a good little boy or a good little girl and you went to college and you got your degree and you went to maybe law school or you maybe went to medical school or you, and you've done well for yourself, you got that state job, whatever it is, you did well, you did right, you got yourself all set. Now that you've done that, you should also just help a little bit in helping someone else get to where you've gotten. And the gospel looks at that and says, so the problem is not having enough stuff or having enough stuff. And not only are you responsible for saving yourself in that problem, but you're also responsible for saving all those around you. Is Again, as good as that sounds, guess what? The gospel is way deeper and way bigger than that. The gospel says you don't save yourself and you don't save the world around you. It's something else. It's something way deeper. We have to, we have to kind of realize some of the faulty um, inner logic that we have towards our stuff and realize that it actually entraps us and encloses us and puts us in bondage. Most of us walk around and we think, if I just had a little more, then I'd be freed up. Then I'd be unhitched. Then I'd be unlocked. And I'd be more free. The gospel says you actually get more in bondage the more that desire is met. It, doesn't, it works backwards. And again, um, in the show Breaking Bad, it's, it's a wonderful example of this, that you can just see how the drama plays out as this 
main character Walter White gets more and more money and more and more at his fingertips. He gets more and more constrained in what he's able to do. His options become less and less. He actually gets more and more trapped the more he has, and that's accurate. That's seeing things true. And there's this other main character, Jesse Pinkman, who's making basically the same kind of money um, because he's the sidekick on the drug cooking venture. And what happens? But just in that same time where Walter White is getting more and more trapped, Jesse's the more introspective one, and he somehow is sensing this or seeing this, and there's this beautiful scene where he's driving through a neighborhood with a pile of money, millions of dollars next to him, and he's just maniacally throwing thousands of dollars out the window onto people's doorsteps like it's a paper route, right? It's the middle of the night, he's throwing this cash out, and he's just, ha, 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 he's just doing it, as if, this is crazy, why would anybody do this? And yet, for some reason, he's sensing that that's really what needs to happen. And I think he's right. I think he's, even though it feels maniacal, he's actually seeing it clearly. The more you have, the more money becomes central, really, to your, your life, the more closed in you actually become, the fewer your options are. And in a sense, if there's... If there's anything that you can grab hold of that's going to help motivate you to start to give away more, listen to that impulse, follow that impulse, because nothing could be more true of what's good for you. Why? Well, let's move, let's peel down another layer. A grace-centered life is radically a different approach to money, but a grace-centered life also is deeply, deeply transformative. It's deeply transformative. The gospel works so differently than everything else, every other perspective on money. And and what you see in this passage, one of the things you notice is that nowhere in the early chapters of the book of Acts, I don't think anywhere in the book of Acts at all, do you find preaching about money. Jesus talked about money a fair amount and used it to kind of get down under the surface of spiritual things. But in these examples especially, they're not preaching about giving or giving money away. They're not... They're not trying to be manipulative. They're not being rules-based because they know that the results are going to come only from the gospel. And so as you read in verse, chapter 4, verse um, like 33, 34, you read, with great power the apostles continued to testify to how much people should give. No. <laughs> they, they continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And... God's grace was so powerfully at work among them that there were no needy persons. Grace. Grace is funny that way. It has these results, and you're not even having to talk necessarily about the results. The main thing you need to do is just talk about grace and find a way to get more of it. That's the real treasure. I love another place in the New Testament where this is talked about, and it's a little bit like the mystery is, is helped. It's, we get into the mystery a little more by, by this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul is asking these folks to help out some really needy people and asking them to consider sending an offering. This is his logic. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. That really is the key. 
That, that sort of exchange is key. You've come into richness. You've come into treasure. One of Jesus' parables that says this well, that, that helps us understand the connection, is when he describes a person who finds a treasure in a field, buried in a field. He finds it somehow, and then he immediately, with excitement, buries it again, goes out and sells everything, and puts all his money into buying the field. That helps us today to understand sort of the mixture between grace being a sort of a metaphor, but also connecting directly with money. Because on the one hand, he discovers this treasure in a field, and, it's, it, and Jesus isn't saying the gospel is money, and because you understand my grace, you're going to get more money. It does, it's not the point. It's metaphorical. You, the gospel is like a treasure, like the best treasure you could ever find. But then it becomes, it becomes practical immediately. It immediately calls into action your own resources. Just like in that parable. He immediately goes out, uses all his possessions and resources to get the treasure, the gospel. That's what happens. That's the dynamic of grace that's trans, that transforms you. But basically, this beautiful interplay of the gospel is that Jesus finds you. Jesus finds you and then goes out and gives everything to have you. Jesus, who had everything at his fingertips, all power, all wealth, all control, all comfort, and Jesus goes and gives up every single one of those things. He liquidates all his resources on the cross. Why? Why? Why would... Why would the Son of God do that for you on your behalf? He gives up his riches so that you can come into his inheritance. And then what? When you experience Jesus that way, that he's given up all to have you, he's given up all his riches to have you, when you discover that that's how God is in your life, it's not, he's not just religion, he's not just a bunch of rules, he's not a bunch of guilt, you might feel legitimate guilt, but it's not, it's not what Jesus is coming at you with. Then suddenly what happens? Then a switch can flip when you finally encounter Jesus that way and the switch flips. And how can you not respond the same in return? Jesus gave up everything. Jesus liquidated everything. I want more of that. I want that treasure. May all of my resources now come become enlisted in the venture of getting more of that treasure. It switches how you view everything. It switches. And the truth is, it doesn't, you don't have to be... There's a lot of people, and you see that in these responses, there's a lot of people that money is not your idolatry. For some people it is, for other people it isn't. But guess what? Something is your idolatry. There's something. All of us have something that we've drawn into the center of our life. And, and guess what? The interesting thing about money is, for every single one of us, money can be something that helps our idolatry. Right? Money becomes something that we put towards what is most important. Well, you know, you want to know what that is, then think about your life and say, well, what is the thing that I don't even really have to think or analyze whether I spend money on? That, you know, it just kind of goes pretty freely to that. Over here, oh my gosh, don't ask for my money for this. But over here, there's, just, there's, there's always some things in our lives like that, and you're probably in one of your areas of idolatry. In the gospel of grace comes in and fills your center, replaces your idols. That's the life of the Christian, is increasingly letting grace re- replace more and more of your idolatry 
becoming central. And then guess what? Now all your resources are filled up, are freed up to flow towards what is now most important because you want more of it. It's a deep transformative reality. Encountering grace creates behavior that is unusual to the outside, that, that looks odd, and we, people puzzle at it. And it's because there's deep transformation happening inside of your life. If I've encountered the grace of God, then suddenly if I feel in some situation like I have more than someone else and I have some wealth and I look out and I see some poverty, suddenly now, because of the change that's happened in my life, I now view that person in utter solidarity. Before I looked at it as I, I'm in a little more higher place and I need to help get them up. Because of the gospel, now I look level and I say, there is deep solidarity here. First of all, because I no longer am buying the myth that I've saved myself and I've lifted myself up to this position. I'm no longer buying that myth and I say, I could be in that, those shoes tomorrow. It's only by God's grace that I'm not. Secondly, because I understand the deep poverty of my heart. The gospel has helped me see my great poverty and the great tremendous riches of God. And so I resonate with the poverty that I see in someone else. So there's solidarity immediately. That's, what, that's what's different. If you've encountered the grace of God, then you can do something that no one else does. You can look at a fiscally impoverished life and you can say, it just springs up from you. What if I respond lavishly to this person in the way God has responded lavishly to my spiritual impoverishment? If you've encountered God's grace, that's your response. If you've encountered God's grace, then you're no longer going to actively rob yourself of the adventure of fiscal struggle. Financial struggle is a great thing for your faith. When's the last time you prayed for that? <laughs> God, help me to struggle financially. That's a, that is a gospel prayer. It is. That's a prayer that, that is clearly what this community was taking on. Let me liquidate. Perhaps I'll struggle. All right. I'll, get, I'll trust God more. I'll have more of God in the center of my life. Have you been robbing yourself of that opportunity of growth? In uh, doing some little summer travel research, and I came across something I thought was very fun and interesting. In Death Valley, there's this, uh, there's this castle called Scotty's Castle. I don't know if anybody's ever toured Death Valley, but I, I was very intrigued. I never heard of this. There's this. In the 20s, there's this man who built this castle in Death Valley, and it's still there, and it's run, and all the same furniture is still there, so you can tour it. And this guy's name was uh, Walter Scott, and he was kind of a con man, entertainer, um, charlatan kind of character. And so he would tell people who would come to this, uh, this castle and he would entertain people. And he loved telling people that the place was, was funded by a secret gold mine that he had. And this is what he told people. He loved getting people to believe that he had a secret gold mine. The truth was there was this Chicago insurance executive that was his friend and it was that person's vacation home in the winter, and he was, and all of it was paid for by this, this executive in Chicago. And he was just kind of like the person who took care of it. And, um, and I thought, and, and I love that concept of a secret gold mine. And him getting other people to believe he had some sort of secret stash of treasure somewhere. 
That's the gospel, friends. That's, that's, how, that's when you look into the Christian community, you should see people who are operating as if they have some huge treasure, some huge pile of, of security somewhere, because they're, they're acting as if they don't need the stuff that they have. They have something elsewhere that's totally dependable, that's totally deep and is never going to run out. Have you discovered it? Have you discovered the gospel's secret gold mine? Let's pray. Our gracious God, may we discover it and may you help us because we need your Holy Spirit as we come from so many different places and stories and experiences and none of my words are going to um, make someone believe in it. But your Spirit will. Your Spirit will help us right where we are. Help us whether we're just trying to figure out your love for the first time and that's a big enough mountain to climb or we're trying to figure out um, why we clutch our stuff so much and we'd love to be freed up from that. Wherever we are, meet us and help us to understand your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.